And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority. Uh, I'm your host, Aaron Kaster. I'm sitting in the studio. Stefan, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like it's been a week or two since I've seen you. Uh, did I, I just miss you a lot? I think so, yes. Oh. Well, no, it's been a week. I was not here last week. Oh, okay. All right. All Although right. I did, I was live with Rob Shirky, but also not ah, here. that's right. I was unlive with Rob Shirky. That's right. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, we have well, now that we have that settled. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're listening to the Green Majority on, here, here on ZIUT to 9.5 FM. Our wonderful and very appreciated, appreciated community radio partners, as well as the podcast listeners who are listening via a link they can find at greenmajority.ca. If you'd like to join those folks, it's helpful because among a wide variety of other things, two really good reasons to check out the website. Seven one are. Uh, that we post notes to things. Yeah. And the other one is that we do have a real problem with talking fast. And we do get a, that's probably the number one piece of listener feedback. <laughs> uh, we're sorry. Uh, we can't afford a metronome, although that might be useful. Uh, but it's great because if you want to replay something. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to suggest that like play us at like 0.8 speed. Well, that's also and possible. Then, and then get us at, for an hour and 20 minute show at a regular speaking, vo- sp- right. speaking pace. So if people were just thinking, well, maybe if I send them an email and, and, rem- and tell them that they should slow down, that that will be helpful uh this is a great time to remind you that this is our 600th show <laughs> and if that was gonna work it would have worked by now uh stefan uh, <clears throat> we've both been under an immense amount of pressure for a variety of reasons and unfortunately so uh, as such we don't have a special 600th show celebration planned uh however um i am planning some things coming up so we're gonna be we're gonna be thinking about uh, the fact that it is uh, we've been on the air a very very long time and, and one of the things although I don't want to get ahead of myself and promise anything uh, is that I know that many of our longtime listeners are uh, have been uh, severely missing Kevin Farmer and I doubt he's listening right now <laughs> I, again, in fact I guarantee you he's not listening yes he right is now. not listening currently uh, because he's on a very well earned vacation but I'm uh, permanent vacation <laughs> yes <laughs> sounds like you've missed him <laughs> um, but I, I've been missing him recently, and so I think it would be a great way to celebrate uh, the 600 episode, even though we can't do it on the 600 episode, uh, is that I'm publicly now committing. Now I'm locked in. It's public. Yeah, they are. Uh, that I'm going to see if I can talk Kevin Farmer into coming in for 20 minutes or something soon. Um, and aside from that, it's also a, another quick piece of nostalgia before I let you get to news, Stefan, is that is it exactly 100 weeks uh, since I did not die from cancer? Well, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> I got. I know it's people are going to be really scratching their heads that I'm laughing about that, but as was my surgeon when I made the same joke to him earlier this week <laughs> for a checkup but yes i was diagnosed with cancer 100 shows a day uh, ago on our 500th show right i remember 500 the show yeah because i then i did the 500th show entirely by myself and you didn't know what was going on no. because i was just not here yeah that was so a that, that was, was quite awkward. the show that was a good show so uh, you can find that episode yeah and the comeback episode and all of the uh we're not going to mention it, but GI hopes Aaron's okay. Episodes in between while I was gone uh, on the website, along with all our other episodes. So I just thought that look two anniversaries in one. Yeah, when well, go. I, I gotta say, <laughs> I feel like it would be kind of interesting to go back and to to listen to the, some of those episodes, knowing now what was going on behind the scenes. The uh, the five hundredth show, I, I distinctly remember we had we had a, we had a call in. It was uh, there, there was a it was a whole it was a whole uh, attempt to do something without while still sort of trying to pull it together in in, 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 a, in, a, in a couple of days. Um, but I think it worked out. I think, honestly, I, I recommend... Well, it clearly back. worked out because I'm here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, well, I mean, that depends on your opinion, I suppose. Right. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah the uh, but check out those shows those are, those are a those yeah. were a odd set of shows. In fact, one other thing before I step before I let you get to the uh, news here. One other particular thing is if you ever wondered what I sounded like crying, uh, I did a bonus show, very emotional bonus show right. the week that I came back. Uh, that's mostly just me crying for twenty minutes. Hmm. Uh, so there's that. 
so, man, so many things on the, <laughs> so many so many things on the website. Uh, that and there's some climate cartoons and a bunch of other stuff we put yeah. a lot of hard work into. But mostly, it's really about the, the tears. Yes. Um, so, Stefan, moving on from that, and as I said, we'll we'll come back to this. Uh, we're, we're we're nostalgic people. I'm very nostalgic. I know you're nostalgic. So we 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 haven't forgotten, nor do we want to pass over that important. Uh, holiday, if you will, our 600th episode. Uh, but it is not inherently worked in today's show with the exception of that ad-libbed intro. So noted, and we'll keep thinking about that over the next few weeks. Uh, but Stefan, uh, let me just tell the, the, the listeners who our guest is today, uh, and then I'm going to let you get started with news. Sure. So coming up in a few minutes, we have, uh, she's been on the program before, and it is our pleasure to have her back again. Uh, Dr. Gardy, who is the host of Myth or Science on uh, the Nature of Things, <clears throat> Is been on the program before. She's joining us again today to talk about the power of poo. Uh, there is a, a number of interesting uh, research questions that are asked and uh, and answered before your eyes in the documentary. Uh, as is my way of uh, cramming for an exam. I watched the documentary this morning, uh, and it is fresh in my mind. And so I'm excited to talk to Jennifer about that. Uh, that will be coming up in the middle of the show in about 15 minutes, though. Uh, and so I better stop talking so that you can talk about some news before you go. So we're going to start uh, in a different place than the science lab. We're going to start in the courtroom. Yeah. Well, actually, we're going to start just before. We're going to start uh, about halfway around the world from the courtroom, which sort of. But we'll get. We're we're heading towards the courtroom. We'll work our way towards the courtroom. We're working our way towards the courtroom. Kind of like Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, a joke that 100 episodes ago would have made no sense and been terrifying. <laughs> um, so, uh, in June, so that, yeah, this is a story uh, that I think begins actually, well, it begins in probably the Industrial Revolution, but we can't start every climate change story with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, that seems. <laughs> Could, but won't. Yes, exactly. That seems a little over, that seems a little too much work uh, to get into any story. Um, so, this particular story uh, begins in June 2016 as a heat wave threatened Pakistan. Uh, a similar heat wave in 2015 had killed 2,000 people, mostly in Karachi, and the, the capital city of the Sindh province. Uh, and to prepare, uh, Pakistanis began to dig mass graves. And so, this uh, well, uh, this was interesting. And I, I start here because it was sort of buried in one of the articles that sort of talked about the story. And I and I was I I, I, I sort of when I noted that I was like. It, it it sort of pres provided a a, a overwhelming um, uh, sort of a, a umbrella to the rest of the story. It, it sort of it, it colored the rest of the story in a way, um, because th for these folks, no one needed to explain to them the dangers of climate change. No one needed to go to the people who are about to experience uh, you know a heat wave that was g going to likely kill many many people, um, and, and tell them oh so you know climate change is bad. Right. Michael uh, Mann was not over there with his hockey stick graph. No, exactly. Yeah. These are people who are living this, the experience and living the dangers. And, and so uh, inspired by that, uh, or not inspired, inspired is the wrong word, um, in solidarity with the, the, the need to actually do that, uh, there, was, there was a wave of protests uh, in, in, uh, in across, halfway around the world. Specifically, this particular protest ha was happening in, in Boston, or running through Boston. Um, and in one particular part of this was a was was a, a quote-unquote uh, mass grave action in June 2016 where demonstrators uh, basically put themselves in the way of a natural gas pipeline. Uh, it was part of a, 
uh, part of a wave of actions, where 198 people were arrested in 34 actions between 2015 and 2016 to halt the construction of Spectra Energy's West Roxbury Lateral Pipeline. I swear they name these things difficultly to say, so it's hard to remember them. Well, difficult and boring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like very intentional. Yeah, yeah. What what is a what what pipeline is not lateral? Is my question. Um, <laughs> that might be a technical term, but still, um, my understanding there are no pipelines going straight up so far, uh, at least not for very long. Um, uh, which is a high high pressure fracked natural gas pipeline running through Boston, and 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 now of course uh, Houston based Spectra Energy is now owned by Enbridge because you know there's only like three companies that own half these things, and then the and so the pipeline is being built near an active quarry. Uh, where there were weekly blasts, and of course, as these stories often happen, despite the protests, it went operational in January 2017. So this pipeline is already happening. But the protest, this particular protest, basically took uh, activists and they and they climbed into the trenches dug out for the pipeline in the middle of the street, eventually being and then were eventually dragged out by police. You know, it was one of these actions that we see consistently where a whole bunch of people get physically in the way of of, of different things. It's nonviolent civil disobedience. Exactly, um, and it's a. It's a the versions of how one just puts themselves in the way of these things often changes, but really it's one of the more consistent forms of civil disobedience. It's just like, no, you can't build things because I'm here. Right. You know, arguably the actual term tree huggers comes from this basic idea of, no, you can't cut down these big redwoods because I, I chained myself to these trees. Mm. You know, all of these things come from this most specific action of I will put my body in here and because because we have laws about killing me, you can't dig right now. Right. Um, and, and ultimately, 13 of these activists were criminally charged. And this is where you, the story takes a, a turn for what you might expect. Because more, more often than not, you presume that the goal of these, when they're civilly charged, or that when they're charged, is that's a sort of a part of what happens. And then they either they spend their time in jail, or they, or they pay their fine, or, or they plead out, which is usually what occurs, and then they carry, and then everyone carries on. Uh, but this is a little bit different because these these activists actually wanted to go to trial. That was the like maybe not their original state of goal, but event, they, that was their. They were certainly disappointed when they were denied a trial. It was part of the plan. It was part of the plan uh, because shortly thereafter, um, this the civil disobedience, the, the criminal charges were reduced uh, to civil infractions, the equivalent of a parking ticket. Uh, and the civil disobedience center said at the time, "quote By reducing the charges, the prosecutors has avoided." that what could have been a groundbreaking legal case they effectively denied 13 defendants a jury a jury trial and and this is important because i feel like in a lot of these conversations and it, it, it ties back to previous conversations we had on the show in which no one ever feel i feel like no one is ever actually having the real conversation hmm. um in that we are all playing both sides of these sort of rules we've set up but no one is really stating different things like the prosecution is not coming out and being like look we don't want a legal precedent set again where you can defend your case on climate change uh so we are not so we're going to reduce your your things and then the legal defendants are, are out there being like climate change matters please listen to us hmm. and so um, and and they, they had already put Bill McKibben was set to appear as a witness for one of the defendants. Uh, one of the defendants was actually the daughter of uh, Al Gore. So these were not sort of the defendants were were high profile and and were really ready to to try to fight this case because this case really comes down to uh, the necessity for civil disobedience in climate change. 
Can I can I can I have a half second for some social justice rather than environmental justice? Take it. I'm curious, and I and really am. I'm not, I'm not trying to ask and answer my own question here. I'm really curious, and and uh, Stefan, do you have a comment? Say so. Otherwise, I'll just note the question for the audience. Uh, would this situation have been treated the same if Al Gore's daughter was not there? Uh, who knows? And uh, and by which I mean they very likely would have gone to trial, or would have the like who knows who knows what to say. But I just want to note that as a factor. Well, they certainly well they, how this played out. I don't know what impact that had. Though. It was certainly meant they had they had unlimited resources to fight this case, right? It wasn't something that none of these case people were going to go plead out. This was not a part of that battle, right? They, right, they right, were all right. going to they were going to fight this for as long as possible and as go as high court as possible. That was the goal, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't mm-hmm. think there was a I don't think there's any question that having someone like Al Gore's daughter there let, meant basically was in some ways a I don't say protection but in some ways a a, a knowingness that the people who are there were going to have the resources to be able to fight this legal battle for years if they had to right and well it, it also guarantees some degree even if it's momentary and fleeting of media attention right exactly right. so um and so and so yeah and so so this is the so this is the the what they wanted to do. They basically wanted to have an each defendant address the judge uh, and explained why they had tried to halt construction, arguing that the threat of climate change necessitated their, their civil disobedience. And, and this, is the, this is the real question. Um, and then, of course, they connected their lo- local struggle to the national, international struggles that's, that, quote, stem from the catastrophic effects of climate change. And so, and so, yeah. So they have a, you know, they've they've got a pretty good. They have a lawyer named Josh Raisler Cohen of the National Lawyers Guild representing the activists, um, and he comes out and says, "quote The court made a ruling that by the reason of necessity, they were all not responsible for committing any civil infraction." And this is what matters. That quote right there, because this is what just happened was that they were all found not guilty due to the necessity of fighting climate change. Now, because it was pleaded down to just a single judge rather than a jury, it's a much different legal precedent. It's mm-hmm. not as impactful uh, because it's not a it was not a it was not a it's not a it's not a felony charge mm-hmm. uh, or a, or a larger charge. And so, but it's still it may it still is 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 quite important. A Boston judge did acquit the thirteen pipeline protesters on the grounds that the climate crisis made it for necessity for them to commit civil disobedience. And and this has been a this is that has been a ruling that environmental activists have been trying to get for a long time like that that rule that particular ruling uh is is this, in this use of the necessity defense is something that climate activists have been working towards uh with with this goal in mind and and i'll just harken back to something you may have remembered us co- covering about a year ago uh which was the was the, the delta five who <laughs> are the, who are five activists uh, in, in 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 seattle or near seattle in washington where they blocked a train um they sort of erected a a tripod and had someone locked to the middle of it uh, to to block coal trains. I believe it was. It was a train of some sort of. I think it was coal, and and they were trying to use a necessity defense in that case. And and the judge in that case was basically like, uh, you didn't you did not exhaust all legal efforts to get your point across, and therefore uh, you could could not escalate to illegal action. Basically, mm-hmm. and and was important note here was that as as you mentioned before the show it sounds like everyone sort of heard that it was like okay well we'll go out yeah. and do that they were listening yeah exactly uh, taking and so, notes and so part of the part of uh, the judge Driscoll's <clears throat> reasoning in this particular case that just this occurred was that the actors had applied a sustained effort in the, to end the project and seek legal remedies through the city council the mayor and other agencies so they had basically gone out and done all of the work they could do beforehand to get this thing stopped and then we're like well we've done now we must escalate and that was a big part, and that's part of the battle you're fighting here, is proving that you've done everything else. Right. So 
there's a there's a really not clean uh, correlation here. I want to do, and I was going to keep it to myself, and then and then you gave me another reason to, to say it. So the, the a correlation for the necessity defense, although le legally this is not the a correlation, but sort of like conceptually for the layman, this may be a correlation of the fact that you can't shoot someone in the street. But if they're breaking into your home, you know, and of course, if it's an accident, there's like manslaughter. So there's all this nuance to what was the situation. It's not just did somebody kill somebody. And if it's in your you know, home and they're breaking in and you shoot them generally, you know, all else being equal, that's not a crime. Right. Dep depending on where you are, depending on circumstances. Yet, yet, yet. I'm not not a legal expert. But so the, the thing here would be like uh, what I was wondering was and, and again, acknowledging these are very different situations. Um, but the thing would be like, well, what would the what would you know, you needed to exhaust all other options be in that case? Well, it's like, well, did you try calling out hey burger burglar get out of my house? allowing them time to turn around so like what so understanding and acknowledging those two situations are very very different but and 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 lawyers i'm sure will be able to point out more difference to me but like to me at a, at a, at a layman's level i'm having a real struggle with that part of it because like there's a lot of reason to believe that these actions would not be effectual and it seems to me to be a bit silly like if we're drawing precedent from other situations where necessity applies it seems to me to be uh, a, a unjustly high bar to say that in, in taking into account all of like knowledge right so if you took a single case in isolation sure but like it's not the first time someone's protested a train it's not the first time somebody lobbied a politician there is there is sort of like an accepted understanding about what politicians are doing people are doing this so maybe you Stefan didn't go on campaign but there's millions of other people who are and they're not listening to them so do you personally have to go and knock on the politician's door so I, I'm, I'm not really adding a lot of information to this part of the conversation I just feel like I just want to flag this as like a thought piece I guess as part of that like is even that required or is even that onerous well I think I think the when you expand on all the ways the necessity events could be used to begin you begin to understand you know in some ways why it's important to provide other uh, you know versions of this right mm. um but i think it is it is a piece of which the it, it's still a part uh, the, the thing about the necessity defense is that ultimately if it's uh, activists are just trying to force the courts to litigate actually climate change right that's mm. what's happening they're, they're, like they're trying to get to a place and we saw this even two weeks ago on in the conversation about san francisco where where, where the where the young people think no it's not, not, not no, it's not San Francisco. It's in Oregon, I think. Uh, but the students who are the court is in San Francisco. The kids are from Oregon. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. um, but where they're pro, where they're suing the where the kids are suing the federal government for not getting enough action. It's a similar state here, where basically it is what the goal of the activists is to force the court to actually just listen to climate change reality. Right. And and then address that. That's the whole goal. And the goal is like to knock off. Basically, it's a billion check boxes to force that one conversation. Right. And, and 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 we're seeing this happen in like seventeen different angles right now in the United States. And and it's all like a, almost like a race to see who can get to the Supreme Court first to actually litigate climate change. Because right. if you can get that climate change is a real thing on on the books in in actual court, that opens up a whole realm of opportunity to to begin litigating. I guess all I was saying was that in, in the American system, uh, because we have more information about the American system in these in these types of cases right now uh, than I do about Canadian uh, situations uh, or any law, was just the idea that like I, w I would think that, that even that part of that ruling would be challengeable and appealable. 
that part saying that you individually, the person who did the action, has to have personally gone and tried every other avenue. Uh, I just, I'm just saying that I think that that would be challenge. That aspect would mm. be cha- would be debatable in court. Right. Well, yeah. The necessity defense is, is actually very hard to use. That's part of mm-hmm. the thing, um, and it's part because they don't want you to use it. Yeah. Um, because, but so the so in and so there's a history. There's, there's a history here. So in 2008, uh, Tim De Christopher of the group Peaceful Uprising, who was sentenced to prison after protesting an oil and gas lease auction in Utah. Uh, asked the judge at the time to acknowledge, quote, the severity of climate change, the degree to which our government's response has been a failure, and the degree to which regular folks like us have a necessity to prevent this harm. And so this has been, again, this has been working their way through quite some time. And a judge in Minnesota ruled in t- October 2017 that three activists charged with felonies could argue that it was a necessity to shut down oil pipelines in response to climate change. And a similar thing has now happened in, in, in Spokane, Washington. Uh, and so we'll probably come back to this because the Minnesota case goes to trial this summer um, and with, with climate science and civil, civil disobedience experts planning to testify in court. And again, this is sort of the work they're going towards it. And and just to, to briefly end off on a Canadian context and to explain a little bit about why you're not seeing the same fight here in Canada, uh, the basically is that necessity defense exists in Canada, but it's much more limited. It's actually even harder to get it passed. You, it's it sounds as if basically that you're not going to be able to use client like most legal experts don't think the necessity defense can be used in 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 this case, which is why you don't see the same. Which is why that's not necessarily a part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but to put this in the Canadian context more more generally. Uh, what we've seen in terms of movements that has not stopped activists from doing similar types of demonstrations. You know, the month of March has seen an overwhelming push from activists uh, in British Columbia against the Kinder Morgan pipeline. You know, there was 10,000 people marched in, in, in early March. And then over and then last week from the 17th to 24th, 172 people were arrested at the gates of Burnaby Mountain uh, by basically blocking the, the way into the, the, the Kinder Morgan facilities. And in so these these people are being pu- these climate conversations are being pushed into courts here in Canada as well, but we don't have that wedge issue, the necessity defense, and so activists are trying to find these other little pieces, and I think what that speaks to is that this is the game that is happening. I, I, I call it a game just you know because of how it sort of feels, not because of, not because of the importance of it, but it feels as if all around the world activists are basically trying to. F- play the system as well as possible right. to 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 get people to wake up to the to the overwhelming uh just just fear that that exists around climate change because of how important the actual work is mm-hmm. and and what we're seeing here is is each in individual country a slightly different and nuanced and an attempt to to work the the what levers each each individual country has to get this action but it's this but no one is just having the conversation and and it's not that actors haven't tried we, they tried having the conversation and, and obviously that conversation still goes here we are having this conversation 600 right episodes 600 episodes <laughs> in. um and <laughs> But, but but I think that it's it's, it's it's such an interesting thing to note that there has not gone to a point where the the courts or or even us in in, in policy uh, are having a, a truly honest conversation about climate change you know um, and and so that's it's that's something to note really just like and 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 to and to, and to keep an eye on really to pay attention to this case in Minnesota and keep watching how these or these activist organizations are moving into the courts because it's intentional they're doing they're doing the work um, and they're trying to have these conversations and so hopefully uh, we get somewhere with those uh, but yeah keep it up and well done to the to the 13 people who are not guilty 
uh, of a, what is now basically a parking ticket, which again is like the things that are not things that are important are not important in, this, in the cases is always so nuanced that it's hard to really explain. It's like no, they don't have to pay a seventy-five dollar parking ticket, but but it's actually very important uh, for other reasons entirely. Yeah. So I had so much fun speculating about legal things I don't know anything about stuff, and that we're over time. So I apologize. We're gonna go right. <laughs> we're gonna have an extremely short musical break, and we'll be right back with our guest. We're gonna be talking to Dr. Jennifer Gardy in a minute about the new Mither Science program, The Power of Poo. Not the program, but the episode. We'll be right back after this break. And this is the Alex Goodman Trio jamming on Moon River. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here with CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Saren Kaster. Stefan's in the studio, and I'm hoping that we have Dr. Jennifer Gardy on the phone. Are you there? We sure do have me on the phone. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry we got so caught up in our first section there. We went a minute or two over time. I will make sure you get your time, though. Uh, So, (laughs) Dr. Gardy, we've had you on the program uh, before to talk about uh, other myth or science episodes. Today's episode, or the one we'll be discussing today, uh, is called The Power of Pooh. And... uh, it was a it was an uh, uh, fascinating episode, and there was a bunch of uh, topics I was expecting you to get into, and a bunch of them I wasn't. Uh, but <laughs> perhaps you could just because uh, um, I was ch- uh, chatting with the person who who connects me with a lot of our CBC interviews, uh, and they were saying this was a, you know an awkward topic for the for everyone involved to try and even like promote it. So I mean, for, uh, first <laughs> off, um, could you just tell us about you know how you got interested in in this subject and sort of where this idea came from? Absolutely. Well, I'm a microbiologist by training. Once a, a year or so, I go off and do CBC duty and host the Nature of Things, take over for David for an episode or two. But the rest of the time, uh, I'm a microbiologist. I work at the BC Center for Disease Control and have a position um, in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. So microbiologists love poop. <laughs> there is one thing that we love talking about. It's fecal material, uh, usually other people, not ours specifically. But it's such a really interesting substance for microbiologists. Uh, it tells us a lot about human health. It tells us a lot about animal health. It's just an interesting thing, period, full of cool microbes. So it was really neat to be able to um, put my professional life and a professional interest together with my science communication life. And the entire episode for the, uh, the entire idea for the episode actually came up as a bit of a as a result of a bit of a joke, I guess, <laughs> we were uh, shooting our last episode, uh, one on uh, the science behind the five senses. And over the years, the crew's been working together for six or seven years now. You've sort of developed a repertoire of jokes that you rely on. <laughs> and one of them, given that our, our franchise is called uh, Myth or Science, is you see something out there in the world and you say its name and then you say Myth or Science. So you see a dog going past the dogs myths or science or you know, half a gas station on the road gas station myths or science and we were shooting the uh the secret of the senses episode it was our last day on the road we were getting a little bit silly and we saw a poop lying there i assume it was canine in origin i hope it was canine in origin anyway and uh we looked at it and we said poop myth or science and then everybody kind of looked at each other and went, wait a second that's actually a really good idea. I think one of us knows a microbiologist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, I wonder who could who could possibly have any ideas about this? Looks around, looks at self, and boom, yeah, show. 
So that's great. So as, as, as I was teasing before we just we had you on the phone here, I, I, I doubt you were able to listen to the rest of the program, but um, I was just talking about uh, usually my the, the best way for me to study, and it got me through all of my schooling, was was crash studying. So I watched the, the mm-hmm. entire documentary this morning. Uh, awesome. before, so it's fresh in my mind, best way for it to be. <laughs> and so I, I actually had this a little bit farther down my notes, but it seems very topical given what you just said. So I'll, I'll bump it up to my, ne- my next question, which was, you know, one of the things I was talking about is about, I was about halfway through the episode. It's about, it's an hour long. It's an hour episode. Mm-hmm. And I was about halfway through and it just occurred to me. And, and so I wrote it down in my notes here was the idea of, um, what impact is someone who's both you know a hard scientist in the sense that you do research um, mm-hmm. and a science uh, we won't we'll say educator activist I, I'm not sure what your favorite word there would be uh, evangelist mm-hmm. whatever you like, <laughs> I like that um, communicator communicator so nice yeah and yeah um, and, and what I what I was curious to know and occurred to me halfway through the show and I think now is the time to ask you is do you think and to what extent do you think that topics that are sort of socially awkward impacts serious science? Do people not look into things that could be very useful because of the social stigma around them? Absolutely. I think that's incredibly true. Um, And it impacts uh, so many things. I work, uh, you know, most of my uh, research enterprises on tuberculosis, which is a disease that has a lot of social stigma attached to it. And it doesn't get as much attention paid to it as it should, I think, as a result of this. Poop, it really is a perfect example. You know, we think of it as it's kind of this, ooh, yuck, oh, gross sort of substance. But as you see in the film, um, there's actually a lot of really interesting things we can do with it. There's things that are practically useful. Um, We do a story about can you get clean drinking water out of poop. Uh, We look at uh, turning poop into electricity. And we look at it as a a source of really kind of intimate information about not only human health, but animal health as well. There's all these really cool stories there. But yeah, because it's got this big kind of, oh, gross factor. I think people haven't given it as much attention as it deserves. Uh, But I hope that this film kind of helps to shift that perspective a little bit. Whenever you can just start talking about something, you know, that's one of the first steps to um, reducing stigma around something, is just getting it out there and having conversations about it. So when you're able to spend, you know, 60 minutes of your national broadcaster's time talking about Poop—that's a positive step in the right direction. Yeah. So I, I was—I was also thinking to myself, and, I, and I've tried to be very careful with the questions that I wrote down, not to ruin the episode for people, because we don't want to give them the polls <laughs> notes so that they don't go watch it. But I, I'm hoping you'll forgive me just this once. Absolutely. Um, and and I'm going to let you do the honor of breaking the bad news to folks that there's almost <laughs> certainly fecal matter on their toothbrush. Oh yes, uh, that's one of the things that we as microbiologists are acutely aware of. That basically all of us go through life coated in a thin film of feces <laughs> and our world is just covered in little aerosolized bits of fecal matter coliform bacteria poop is everywhere you don't have to look very far so the episode opens with uh, us taking a look at why the simple act of flushing a toilet if you don't have the lid down uh, actually does propel bacteria fecal bacteria coliforms uh, throughout your bathroom and it'll land on whatever's there. So long story short, the best advice is flush with the lid down and keep your toothbrush inside a medicine cabinet, a drawer, something like that. 
Right. So it's more of a more of a splash issue than a like radiation issue or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think they're teeny tiny? All that, you know, physical drama of the flush and the water swirling everywhere and toilet paper flying. It's, it's like a little whirlpool in your bowl. And that basically causes the uh, the expulsion and eventual settling of little uh, little poo molecules. So the 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 next thing I wanted to ask you about, and you uh, and so again, I'm I'm trying to walk a line here between talking about the episode and and ruining the episode for people here. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to go off topic here, but not as off topic as it's gonna seem at first. So don't don't worry. Yeah. I'm not going with this where you where people may think I'm going with this. But of course, uh, so Cambridge Analytica has been in the news a lot. We've been talking about uh, you know the Facebook mm-hmm. collection of data, and and just because that's so top of mind for me, when we got to the section uh, where we were uh, with the ME, uh, MIT researchers who were uh, yeah. putting samples down into the sewers and you listed a couple things of course you we can tell what people are eating well that's not surprising uh drugs was i think a little bit more surprising not to me that was something i was very familiar with we covered that on the show before but just the idea that you could uh you could tell what drugs people might be taking uh legal or otherwise Mm -hmm. i suppose uh in a neighborhood from sampling it but the one that really caught my eye was stress and so i want to ask you about the the how they can analyze those things how do you pick up the drugs i think that's an easier question the drugs i'm uh sorry the stress i think much more uh interesting to me. Uh, but then if you would comment to some degree on just the idea of that idea of big data and privacy when it comes to yeah. how much information you can get from people from things they never even knew that were available sources of information like the sewer. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic question. Um, so how we get at stress levels um, would be by assaying looking for stress hormones that are present in the, the sewers. So for those that want a little preview, this is a, a story about researchers at MIT who have a project called Underworlds. And it's all about what can we learn from the city underneath our city? What can we look? Uh, what can we learn from looking into the sewer system, um, and really uh, kind of using it as a, a source of untapped information? So, this group at MIT has developed this sewer-going robot, Luigi, and uh, he goes down and filters the uh, sewage material that's running through. Uh, basically, it's collecting kind of all of Cambridge's. Sewage. It's not specific to a particular block. It's, you know, hey, this is everything that's coming in from this neighborhood. That is filtered on the spot by this robot and materials taken back to the lab where researchers can do a number of different things. They can look for the presence of pathogens that might indicate if uh, an infectious disease is circulating in a neighborhood, you know, maybe people have the flu or food poisoning, things that they might shed traces of fecally. Um, they're looking for what did people eat? You can get signals of people's diets based on some of the material that comes out. Uh, and yeah, um, drug use, whether it's prescription, over-the-counter, or otherwise, uh, and stress hormones. So all of this is just done with some simple lab assays. And it's really cool proof of concept that this can work to kind of give you an aggregate level, real-time readout of a neighborhood's health. And I think it's a really interesting question because we're at this point in time where this is very much proof of concept. And so you can see the value for sure. You know, I work in public health. My day job doing microbiology and science and TB and all that fun stuff is out of the BC Center for Disease Control. And so I know very, very well just how difficult a time we have doing traditional public health surveillance. We really rely on kind of antiquated systems for saying, oh, look, we have slightly more cases of this infectious disease, or we've got slightly more uh, incidents of this particular behavior happening in a region. So it's really difficult for us to understand um, 
where we need to be responding, the scale of that response, and getting that information in real time so we can actually mount an effective response. So I think this sort of technology offers a really cool um, new avenue for surveillance. That being said, there are loads of ethical, legal, and social implications associated with this. So any new technology really merits a pretty holistic interrogation right up front. Like you have to be doing social sciences studies, you have to be doing ethics studies, you have to be really gauging public perception of an issue and public acceptability of an issue and what the stakeholders need out of this and what the regulators need out of this. So I think it's a really cool story, but if we're going to see it turn into something useful, it has to be rolled out quite carefully. You know, I've always found as a public health person, it's interesting to see the differences between the amount of information that people are comfortable with giving up when it comes to medical issues mm-hmm. um, versus the amount of information that they'll sort of freely give away, um, usually not knowing they're giving it away uh, through sites like Facebook and social media and clicking through these, uh, you know, license agreements that, uh, what do they say, when the, the service is free, the product is you. So yes, it's yeah. kind of, <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> to see, you know, how could how could we leverage this cool new technology as something that might help us out and do a better job of public health? But uh, yeah, it's going to require a lot of really careful thinking and a lot of really careful implementation to get it right and get people excited about it. You know, one thing we've learned over the years from talking about data sharing in public health is that people are generally excited to have data used for medical benefit and to make this society a healthier place. Um, but yeah, if we want this to really work and have to do this real-time poo-based monitoring system, we're going to have to really frame it in the right way. Sure. Yeah, and exactly. One of the curses of being both a science and technology enthusiast and highly creative and somewhat paranoid uh, is that <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a really dangerous combination of four things, I assure you. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So one of the things that happened to me, of course, and I, 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 this is the last thing I want to ask about this. I don't want to get sucked off on this one uh, idea, but the, uh, it just I find it so interesting was that I was thinking like, you know, if they had these these machines and again, you can watch the documentary, you'll, you'll see exactly what we're talking about uh, or the, uh, the episode. Um, you know, if they have these machines and they're doing them once in a while to get gather sort of generalized, you know, public health information about a neighborhood, say, you know, uh, results averaged over, say, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 people, something like that. Sure, it's not, it's completely impersonalized. And so there's really little personal risk there. Uh, But if, say, someone decided to clandestinely or publicly clip a little one of these machines to every single house's drain put, well, there now Mm -hmm. suddenly isn't anything you couldn't know about that, you know, a set of individuals. Uh, And so where does that, where do those lines get drawn and so yeah i'm i'm very enthusiastic about a lot of these technologies but at the same point i think we just had a very brutal recent reminder about the other side of that too so just worth worth mentioning yeah yeah and you know we've seen um people in the past have mentioned the idea of something like a smart toilet which would be the the most local implementation of this which is something that you know you poop into every morning or every every evening or both whatever your schedule is uh and it essentially would do the same sort of thing. It would monitor your fecal material for, oh, you know, are there any signs of a changing microbiome composition? Is there any unusual stuff in here that shouldn't be here? Maybe it's even looking at things like the consistency of what you're producing and is giving you this sort of real-time readout of, hey, you should do this, you should do that. Like, this is a legitimate idea that people have floated multiple times in the past. And yeah, the idea of having kind of a a corporate internet of toilets kind of thing (laughs) in my bathroom is a little scary. 
that's a totally different take on big data. I think there. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, uh, sorry to nerd out for the audience for a second, but uh, I've even like even an anime that I that I saw had that exact thing where the the it was an entire smart home system in this fictional yes. space, um, <laughs> and essentially the toilet did a readout of your you know number ones and number twos, and then calculated a, your your nutritional requirements for that day based on those readouts and stuff. Like this oh, is all so bizarre. It's it's science fiction at the moment, but these are not impossible things. These are very doable. Exactly. Things. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that we show in the show that I think is a really nice example of um, how you can do this well is uh, not thinking about human health and all the privacy implications that come along with that, but the story we did with the orcas in the mm-hmm. Salish Sea, and can you use their fecal material as a barometer for their health? And I think that's really cool when you've got animals that you want to be taking care of and looking after, but they can't tell us what's wrong. You know, the orcas in the Salish Sea can't tell us why their population numbers are dwindling, but it turns out they're poop can so there's kind of a good side and a bad side you know if it's applied to humans i don't know about that but uh looking at it from a veterinary uh perspective there's some really interesting applications there yeah and i might not even say a good side and a bad side i might say a good side and a good side with some big asterisks next to yeah, it. yeah <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> a lot of opportunity with some with some potential downsides as well uh totally. jennifer i could talk to you fully for an hour with no trouble but i think we're, we're unfortunately we're running short on time there is two questions though i cannot let you leave without answering uh, sure. so I'm gonna I'm gonna shotgun them for you and you can shotgun them back to me uh, one of them it. was I wrote down and this is literally what I wrote in my notes world water world question which <laughs> you're probably <laughs> old enough as, as I am to know the I reference saw it there. in the theater <laughs> uh, yeah exactly <laughs> uh, um, so my question was and this is this was the specific question I wanted to ask you was is it possible with current technology you didn't cover this explicitly in the show but it was kind of, it seemed like a logical extension of what you were talking about in the, in the episode mm-hmm. is it currently possible do you, to your knowledge to say cycle the same 50 liters of water indefinitely through a person and clean it and do it or is there something that actually currently with technology requires the environment so could you could you take 50 liters and just cycle it indefinitely by cleaning it and then taking it and repeat is that a thing that's a great question um i think that uh you would probably get the sort of human health equivalent or the human ecosystem equivalent of the angels share in distilling where uh, you Mm. put a little whiskey into the barrel and a little a little bit dissipates over time. Mm. So I think you'd eventually kind of exhaust that 50 liters and you'd constantly be having to inject a little bit more into the system. There's no process is 100% efficient. But uh, yeah, as you'll see in the film, the uh, Omniprocessor, this machine that can turn sewage into clean drinking water. Uh, and we've got a farm as well that uses all the manure that their cows produce uh, to power the farm and five other farms with the electricity they're creating. There really is this tremendous potential to take human waste or animal waste waste and make this sort of self-contained ecosystem where you're generating water, you're generating power, you're generating so many of the things you need. And just like you said, you know, cycling that through time and time again and and creating this perfect, um, almost perfect, slightly leaky system. Yeah. So and and of course, we're thinking about all these ideas and people should go and watch the episode. I'll ask you in a second to uh, to let people know when uh, when they can take a look at that. Uh, but that's sort of what I was running through my head the entire episode. And I think will be particularly appealing to the audience of our show is that what I was thinking about the entire way through the entire hour all the way through was so many examples here and there of uh, ways to uh, help the environment. There's energy conservation, there's recycling, there's closed loop systems, maybe if they're uh-huh. imperfectly closed, but, you know, relatively 
relatively closed systems as far as like zero waste uh, applications, both on a large scale and a small scale building design. Yep. They're my the little ideas in my head were just lighting up like flares. Uh, <laughs> so we're tons of there. As that's I wasn't kidding when I said I could talk to you for another hour. No no question. Uh. So please go do it. So so my final question, and 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 I'll give you permission to refuse if you wish. But um, uh, would you a? Well, I'm sure you'll say yes to this. Would you please uh, let people know when and where they can watch the program? And my you're allowed to say no question, but I hope you don't. Is can would you like to just ruin beaches for people for uh, for people before you go? Would I like to ruin what? Ruin beaches for people before you go beaches. to the very end of the show. Oh, <laughs> for a second I thought you met the Bette Midler and Barbara Hershey film. <laughs> like, that's a long time ago. Going back to the water world. Thing. It was, that's my gotcha uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, yes, you can watch the show this Sunday night, 8 p.m. on CBC television. It's on the nature of things. And yeah, when you go to the beach, certain types of beaches, not all beaches, um, but yeah, certain types of beaches are basically fish poop. Those beautiful white sands, it's just, it's crap. It's literally fish crap. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Gardy. Thanks for joining us. That was great. So much. Thank, uh, thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, my morning coffee hasn't kicked in yet. It's still <laughs> early in Vancouver. <laughs> uh, you're doing a great job anyway. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks. Have a good one. Okay. All right, so that is uh, it. We're a little over time, but I thought that she deserved the time because it's my fault she was overtime. <laughs> so <laughs> Stefan uh, here is waiting in the, uh, uh, what is it called, the warm-up box? Wow. Am that, I doing good? No, not at all. Damn. Can on you deck. correct me? They're on, on deck. deck. Stefan's on, on deck. <laughs> the warm-up box. <laughs> uh, Stephen, can you uh, help segue my, uh, my bad jokes? All right, so for our music break, this is Grimes with Oblivion. All right. We are back here listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And uh, Stefan here has been waiting. Uh, I won't repeat my bad because I don't remember what you told me I'm supposed to say. I'm on deck. <laughs> Stefan's no, Well, you're no longer on deck. You're now at the plate. Okay, there we I go. I knew that word. I, I was worried you were going to get plate wrong. <laughs> you're now at the batter's box. Oh, right. Okay, that's, that's, well, that's sort of right. You're, you're close. Um <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, there's two stories here uh, that that seem a little bit that when I when I first looking over them seemed a little bit um, not too connected. But I actually think there's actually an interesting way to talk about the two of them. So the first one is the, the Guardian uh, and the Rainforest Action Network and Treehugger have all come up with these articles recently, basically talking about how investments in the dirtiest of fossil fuels have skyrocketed uh, under the Trump administration, and and specifically uh, that an, a new report from the Rainforest Action Network shows a sharp rise in global fossil fuel investments. Uh, and this reverses much of the progress that was made after the after the Paris uh, Agreement, and and a lot of the those. Uh, this is also important for the, for the later conversation that a lot of those uh, increased investments come I from Canadian banks investing in in the tar sands, and, and so the tar sands gained forty seven billion dollars of investment last year, which of course I'm sure conservatives are certainly not blaming on Trudeau, um, <laughs> uh, and, and more than doubling previous numbers, and in funding, and this is more concerning. Uh, they're also funding Arctic and ultra deep water oil and and coals also up significantly. So these are you know, these are not sort of the this is not the bridgeways from one from 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 one one part of fossil fuels onto a clean energy revolution. This is this is like this is like going to scrape the bottom of the ocean kind of stuff. You they're, might say the end bridge. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not that. It is the end bridge, not the bridge. Um, but we're so gonna, we're gonna have to get a sound clip with that. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and, and a lot of this followed the, uh, Trump's promise to withdraw from the, Clare, the Paris Climate Accord. So uh, shortly after that, U.S. and Canadian banks raced into what they call, quote-unquote, unconventional energy sector, uh, which, which includes J.P. Morgan Chase increasing its coal funding by a factor of 21 uh, so 21 times more coal funding and quadrupled its Qatar Sands assets. And, and then it has also asked the U.S. Securities and Exchanges Commission to help block shareholders' requests for a bank report on the financial and climate risks associated with the Star Sands. And so this is this is not a this is not just an American thing, of course. Uh, RBC and TD are the biggest backers of of, of the Tar Sands, with 38 billion dollars uh, between the two of them, and. And some European banks have also increased coal divestment, much of it coming from HSBC, which, if you remember, no matter how many times HSBC is going to try to convince you that they are the bank of the future and the loveliest bank in the world, they also helped funnel money into actually terrorism. A thing they did. Um, <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. Uh, and so, so, and of the 10 worst banks uh, of, of dirty fossil fuel investment, four are Canadian, and TD and RBC are both in top three. So, like... This is going back to our about a three or four weeks ago show where we, were, where we briefly sort of got into the conversation around what the government, what the Kinder Morgan was up against, quote unquote, uh, the, the sort of the, the sort of my mind consistently ludicrous argument that the activists are the big scary organization that that will defeat this and the kinder morgan is the helpless small little thing despite being you know supported by every major bank in canada and also the canadian government um not to mention the billion dollar you know pipeline company that actually is trying to build the thing but what i want to get to here more specifically because it sort of ties into the larger conversation i want to actually have is that the uh, is that what this says is that basically Trump comes in, he sees the the climate court, uh, climate agreement, he removes, he basically, he, he signals that, that climate action is not going to happen soon in the United States. And suddenly a whole bunch of money flows into uh, pipeline and, and other infrastructure. Uh, and, to, and a whole bunch of money flows directly to fossil fuel companies. So conservatives are consistently telling uh telling people to listen to the market the the market sort of knows all uh and is used as a, as a way to sort of prove and or disprove you know if you if your idea can't work on the market then it is not then it's not tenable and if it does work on the market it works and that's sort of the there's a, a big part of conservative thought that really in some ways allows the market to do a lot of the intellectual lifting uh right for, which for which makes total sense because that that's exactly why all these oil companies have billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies oh wait a minute <laughs> sorry that's a side issue i just wanted to mention yeah well but but again this is you know that's a consistent conversation that's being had and so here's my question um if that is the case if we're if we are listening to the market and if climate policy being at the redu redu reduction or the the lack of climate policy um, increases investment in the oil sands, increases investment in fossil fuel companies, then that seems to me like the market is telling us something specifically uh, that they are responsible, that climate change is being caused by these oil companies. If, if regulating climate change is going to hurt oil companies, then lack of, regula and lack of regulation is going to help oil companies uh, on climate change specifically, then I think relatively speaking, you can make the argument that the market is telling us that oil companies are creating climate change and forget any scientific argument that mm. is what the market is telling us mm. if the reduction of climate change policies means investment in oil sands and the and the if that if this is happening anywhere else in, in the world you would say that if a certain policy is, is 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 impacting this in this way that is the correlation the market is telling us is occurring and and so 
if we take that, that, that simple fact that the market is telling us, that forget all the lefty people, this is what the market is telling us, and then decide, okay, well, what would the market then have to say about how, who should be paying for some of the costs caused by climate change? You know, again, we're accepting that climate change exists because the market tells us so. Well, it just so happens that there is a, that there is a, new, that there's a new regulation or new, a new, new bill being re- reduced in, in the Ontario legislature this week uh, called the Liability for Climate-Related Harms Act of 2018. And, and this is basically a bill produced uh, that allows people to sue fossil fuel companies for damages caused by climate change. And now I'm sure that at this point, the conservatives are like, well, no, you can't do that. That's against, that's not fair. They don't, can you prove that they have done it? I'm not proving anything. I'm just pointing out that the fact that, I don't know, every major bank and every every major financial institution thinks that climate policy is bad for fossil fuel investment, or and, and therefore, it, lack of climate policy is good for fossil fuel investment. And it sounds like you're telling me, the market is telling me, that they are that they are doing this. And so we need to figure out how we as consumers uh, allow the market to more effectively manage this. And one of these ways is to make sure that they are also paying for it. Right. And so this is, comes from Andrew, Andrew Gage, a staff lawyer with the West Coast Environmental Law, is arguing that BC should also follow suit with this sort of move. And the bill holds that fossil fuel companies are liable for climate impacts, quote, without proof of fault. And, and and that's the quote. And that's the quote there, which is which is I think important to note because without proof of fault does not mean they're not responsible. It means you're not directly tying a specific thing to to anything, right? You can't say that. And, and that's a, that's the constant the problem we've we've said a thousand times on the show, which is that no part of climate change. You cannot say that Exxon created this tsunami, right? That's right. that's not a thing that can happen. Also, tsunamis are mostly caused by earthquakes, so Exxon probably created right. different tsunamis. And uh, the but, reason the reason that's specifically carved out is required is because, as you just finished explaining, uh, this is not only sometimes possible with climate change, but the very definition of climate change, which is that it creates erratic, it creates an it increases the erratic nature of a system, thereby making it impossible impossible to tie any action. So without this, this is not simply a clause that strengthens this legislation. It is a meaningless legislation without it. Right. Yes. It has no meaning yes. without this clause. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You, yeah, you cannot, it would be impossible to sue any fossil fuel company for any particular damage if you had to prove that that fossil fuel company caused that particular damage. Um, and, and so... This is, and so to carry on Gage's comments, he says, quote, up until now, we have been assuming taxpayers are going to pay for everything. We, have, we haven't really looked at, at, to the industry in the way that we have in the past, for example, with asbestos or lead paint. Somehow, we don't, we don't, we don't expect cradle-to-grave responsibility for fossil fuels and the impacts of climate change. And not only is that true from a standpoint of, of just cradle-to-grave, we, for, for, we don't even hold companies, we don't hold anyone responsible for the cradle-to-grave uh, responsibility for climate change, in that so often we only pay attention to the production of the fossil fuels in, in, in the tar sands as the, as the emissions they're caused. We don't, even, we, we don't even bother with downstream burning it uh, when we're talking about some of these conversations, uh, or pipelines specifically. The, the battle to pay attention from cradle-to-grave on these pipelines has been constant. And in the moment that, that Trudeau brought in the concept of a climate test, Energy East went went, went down. Um, and so what we're seeing here is this, con- so we're seeing this as, as this constant push uh, towards 
everything around the climate change conversation points to some pretty obvious points. You know, if you even flip like, you know, the fact that prosecutors are trying to avoid getting uh, having climate change litigated so that people are not then do not have a social license uh, or a legal license, actually not social license, a legal license uh, to, to to protest or to stop these pipelines. You're also on the other side, the markets will simultaneously fully invest more in fossil fuels for lack of climate re regulation while basically sort of hand waving and saying these are not the this is not the investments you're looking for when you <laughs> when when focus when nice, faced nice with, stealth star wars reference thank you um when faced with when faced with questions about investments right like the market here is telling us directly that these things are causing climate change and then you go to a bank and the banks and ask them to divest from fossil fuels and they will start hand wringing and being like well it's important for xyz reasons and will not actually respond will not actively and fully respond to those questions and and this is the the game we're still playing is that basically activists are trying to basically just be like hey everyone stare this in the face just do it just spend it like the market is quickly becoming the market is proving that we should stare this in the face and if it was not so directly tied to every facet of our of our, of our planet it would already be done you know, like it's not like asbestos didn't or, or actually the, my favorite example of this is to go back to uh, the brief question of CFCs. CFCs, who were, were destroying the ozone layer, did not stop because they stopped being effective uh, as, as refrigerants. CFCs did not stop because uh, because everyone realized they were destroying the ozone layer. CFCs were stopped because American um, company patented HFCs, which could then make America more money. And and that to me is the is the thing here that you you mispronounced it. It's Murica. Oh, right. Um, I think also, I think it's also, I think it's also, it's also HFC FCs. But um, we oh, love Jesus. you, our ten thousand American listeners. Yes, exactly. Um, but but that is the that is the thing here is that we're seeing place after place after place where where the conversations are directly pointing to the fact that these companies are responsible, and yet you try to stop one person for one half second to be like, no, that you're right. And you get this diffuse, this reaction of diffuse responsibilities and so inaction. And, and so all I'm asking conservatives to do is listen to the market. Mm. Listen to the market, accept the fact that climate change is real, and then figure out how, what to do about it. Because, no, because you're slowly losing the battle on, 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 on how this is going to be regulated. And you better hope, if as a conservative, that you accept climate change is real and get a carbon tax in place before all the lefties decide to regulate everything. Because right. we will. Uh, <laughs> and but again, we'd rather a carbon tax because it's easier. And while you're at it, if you actually believed in the market, you wouldn't be propping up the largest companies in the world with a subsidy and also protecting them every possible legal way that no other company in the world, uh, no other companies in the world get. But that's a side topic for another show. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority this week. Thank you to our guest today, Jennifer Gardy. Thank you to our friends, uh, CBC Connected friends who set us up with these uh, interviews. And of course, to our techs and Stefan for joining me in here in the studio. Have a good green week, folks, and we'll talk to you all real soon. 